Well, take your Bible or your online device and go with me to the book of John. No surprise there, right? We're in week number 80. If you're newer to Grace Church, we preach through the Bible, through books of the Bible. Um, we know that God definitely impacts our feelings, our emotions, and the things that we feel are important, but the most important thing is to dictate those feelings by the Word of God and knowing that truth is what we base our lives on, not the way we feel at any given moment. And so we root our lives in God's Word. And so that's why one of the many reasons why we study God's Word. This is His, His Word for us to live by. This is how we know what our purpose is. And so today we come to a section of Scripture that begins the resurrection account, the empty tomb. And so what an amazing, we've tracked through this book a long time, and now we're at really the pentacle, right? That Jesus is not in the tomb. Verse 1 of chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Then, stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes laying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. When the other disciples who had reached the tomb first, when the other disciples who also reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you for your word. God, we need your word if we are going to live on purpose, if we're going to live out our callings, if we're going to not get caught up in the mundane daily activities, the things that the world says are urgent, which aren't urgent compared to the work that you have for us to do here, God. I pray that today we will see that you've not only called us, but you've given us just a supernatural ability to live out the life that you've called us to live, God. And I pray that each one of us We'll just grab your words and hold them dear to our hearts that we know that we worship and follow a risen Savior. And God, may that make all the difference in the world and in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I was thinking as we were looking at the Missionary of the Week, Florence there in many years in Alaska, that she probably has seen an iceberg many times. Probably a lot of us have not ever actually seen an iceberg, but we know about icebergs. We know maybe from the movie Titanic or from the story of Titanic that what an iceberg did. But you may not know, some of you may, you may not know, that icebergs sit only 10% above the water. So you only see 10% of an iceberg, and everything else, the other 90%, is below the surface. And I thought this is a fitting illustration for a lot of us, that we look strong and we look sturdy and we look like we have it together above the water. But when you dig deeper, you see things like discouragement, depression. You find, see anxieties you're struggling with, even 
dark periods of time in your faith, spiritual darkness, unsettling doubts, divided heart, maybe even a secret life or a secret sin that you're struggling with. Below the surface, nobody sees those things. Very few people get a glimpse into that. Maybe if you're married, your spouse, maybe someone close to you, but for the most part, you're living your life and you're walking into church today and we look at you and we think, wow, that person, they seem to have it together, but they know they don't. I think about a friend of mine who actually years ago I invited to come to here and speak to our student ministry. He was a bivocational pastor. He was in law enforcement, but he was, uh, was an excellent preacher. I went to Bible college with him. And, you know, he preached great messages. Many people responded to the words that he had to say. But Michelle and I went one night to Beef O'Brady's right over here with him to eat. And he, he literally broke down. He, he's like, I, I hate people. He's like, I'm so bitter on the inside. He said, I'm so angry. He's like, I don't even like people anymore. He's like, I, I, I need something. I need to change my, my heart because my heart is so off. And maybe you can relate to him. And the good news is that he was able to, through God's power, to work through that season of his life. And he's in a great spot today. But we can easily fall into that pattern when we don't understand the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the difference that makes. Paul said it this way in Philippians 3, verse 10. He said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. All right, grab that, grab hold of that for a second. The power of Christ's resurrection lives in us through the person of the Holy Spirit. You see, we as Christians are probably the, the people of all people in the world who believe in the supernatural the most, but we're also some of the most pragmatic people and people who actually in our practice sometimes we ignore or don't really trust that there is this supernatural element to our lives and to the world, right? Because we think, all right, yeah, sure, God, Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, and we compartmentalize that and then we live our lives as if we're living in a natural world. But we have to have a supernatural mindset if we are going to live in this world the way that Jesus called us to live. We have to live with an understanding that the resurrection isn't just a, listen, it's not just a historical fact. It changes everything. It changes the way that we view the world, the way that we interact with the world, the way that we understand our purpose in the world in your 8-to-5 job, in your family life, in your choices, in the things that you do on your own time. It impacts everything. If Jesus is alive, it changes everything. And, and think back through the Gospel of John, some of the things that Jesus has said so far. So it's not just, yeah, sure, Jesus changes everything by being alive. The tomb is empty. But he, he said, we know this one, John 3.16, whoever believes in me will have eternal life, okay? So eternal life is beyond the natural way of thinking. It's, it's a supernatural place. It exists after death. That's as supernatural as you can get. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus says, this is, this is something that you can't just comprehend in a natural mindset, that you come to the Father through Jesus. John 1.12, he said, As many as believed and received him, to him gave them the rights to become the children of God, even those who believe in his name. So through Jesus, we become children of God. So we are not our own. We, scripture says we're bought with a price. 
we now belong to God. We're his children. Verse 38 of chapter 7, whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his innermost being or out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. All right, so Jesus made this claim, not me, that out of your heart will flow rivers of living water when the spirit lives within you. That's pretty supernatural stuff. John 10.10, 10, the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, I've come that you can have life and have it abundantly. Do you believe Jesus is telling the truth there? Is that something that's obtainable? John 17, just one more. The glory that I've, has been given to me, he says, I give to you that you can be one even as we, the Trinity, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, God, are one. And then he says, I and them and you and me. We talked a lot about this, our union with Christ, that we're in Christ and Christ is in us. There's nothing at all natural about that statement, right? So this is supernatural stuff, and the empty grave reminds us that it's all true, that it all is to be taking, taken very, very literally, that there is this thing that changed in our lives when we put our faith in Jesus because of the empty tomb, that he gave us this power to live by through the Holy Spirit that changes our outlook and the way that we do life, and the question is, do we have confidence, do we have faith in that, to believe not just that Jesus rose from the dead and the tomb is empty, but to the power that of the resurrection has been given to you to live this life in a way that you cannot live on your own. How much do you believe that, right? Maybe put a number on it, one to ten, right? How much are you believing that? And, and look at your life, look at your choices, look at the things that you say in private, the things you think about in private, the way that you interact when nobody else is around, when you're away on that business trip, maybe that says more about your faith and your confidence in these things than does you above the iceberg here, the iceberg above the water here, what we see in front of us today. So Jesus can be trusted because the tomb is empty. So let's look at the account because this is significant. We cannot just run past this and not see historically what difference this makes that the tomb was really empty. So on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So we've seen over the last weeks that Jesus was beaten, was mocked, was ridiculed, was literally stripped naked, put on a cross, mocked. Remember, many of you said, man, that made a difference to understand that crosses during the Roman time were more eye level, not like Jesus is way up here somewhere, but Jesus was right there where people could walk by, look him in the eyes and see him and, and what he was going through. Last week, Roy talked about how that Jesus was taken and he was put into a rich man's tomb. This was on, a, on Friday. Jesus was put in the tomb. Then you come to Saturday, the Sabbath for the Jewish people. All there is is silence on Saturday, right? There's nothing. Just nothing. People were mostly at their homes, around their homes, not doing a lot of activities, would not have walked to the, the tomb and so there's this, this silence that existed on Saturday. Jesus was dead. And the disciples, I'm sure, were struggling with understanding, like thinking back through all the claims that Jesus made that we just read, plus many more, all the things that Jesus said to them. And was all of this just made up? Was Jesus just out of his mind crazy? Because he's in a tomb and it's 24 hours of just silence, of nothing. Where is Jesus? It's a pause. But then the first day of the week, which would have been Sunday morning very early, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb. 
more than likely to continue to put spices upon Jesus' body. And it's interesting that of all people, not just Mary, but the fact that a woman was picked to be the first witness of Jesus is significant. Because you see, in a natural world, people say, well, this is a made-up story, right? Like, this is probably a later edition, is what most scholars would say. Like, somewhere along the line, maybe like, you know, a couple hundred years or a hundred years after Jesus, that people came in, they're like, we need Jesus to be alive, so let's add some stuff in here to the text to make it look like Jesus was alive, all right? Nobody, first of all, would have picked a woman to be the first witness to the resurrection. Why? Because women were not credible witnesses. They were not asked to be witnesses during the time of Christ. This would not have been like, let's think of a story to tell. All right, yeah, Mary Magdalene, let's put her in as the first witness. Would not have happened. And then the fact that Mary Magdalene was who she was, if you think back to the Gospels account, Jesus had casted seven demons out of her. She was a wicked, evil woman. And of all things, she is picked to be the first witness to the resurrection. What an amazing thing. J. Warner Wallace is maybe not a name you've heard of, but he's an apologist today. But many, many years ago, he also was a policeman. He was a police officer, a police detective in L.A. County. In fact, he was well notarized. He was, people knew who he was to the point that the show Dateline NBC uh, featured him prior to the fact of him becoming a believer in an episode that they had. And he was a skeptic of Christianity, but he began to investigate for himself, much like you may know the name Lee Strobel. And he, he wrote this, he said, I suspected that the gospel accounts related to Jesus had simply been corrupted over time. The story of the resurrection was little more than a late legend. In fact, I surmise that the resurrection passages were absent in early versions of the story, added later by those who wanted to recast Jesus as Christ, the Son of God. But when he starts to investigate, he arrives at what I just said, that Mary was the first witness and the fact that the resurrection story, if it was a late edition, would not have been described in this way. Historically, they would have come up with something different. They would have had a different testimony. But the Gospels faithfully record what actually happened here. They record what really, truly happened. There was no updating of the story. They're just telling it as it is. So Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. What does she do? She thinks that somebody stole the body of Jesus. That's her reaction. Look, verse 2. And she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. More than likely, this is John. John constantly referred to himself as the other disciple or the disciple that Jesus loved, not wanting to bring attention to himself. The one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. And so she goes and tells them the body has been stolen what happens is the two disciples begin to run toward the tomb, verse 3 and 4. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, both, um, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, all right? Again, you know, if John's writing this account, right, I outran Peter, like, yeah, look at me, I'm faster than Peter. But then he also shows in just a second that he was scared to go in. And so, just, just a real-life account of what's going on here. And, and I, I thought, like, when I'm reading this, like, where are the other disciples? Like, what's going on with the other nine? Why are they not there? What's going on with them? But Luke tells us that when the women went back and told the disciples that, verse 20, 
verse 11 of chapter 24 says, but these words seemed to them as an idle tale, like made up, and they did not believe them. So you got the disciples like sitting there, and they're like, well, we're not even going to bother, right? And Peter and John, they leave and they run, but the others, the nine, they just sit there and do nothing. And like, I, I, I don't want to read too much into this text here, but I just, it popped in my mind I was reading this, right? Two out of 11, you know, that's a pretty close percentage what they say that 20% of the church does 80% of the work, right? And you got two disciples who are willing to get up and go and actually look at the tomb. And the others kind of just sit there passively by and just like, oh, you know, God's not alive. You know, we just can't trust. We'll just sit here and do nothing. And I think it's a, it's a super good reminder for us to remember, like, God hasn't called you to be idle. God hasn't called you to be passive. God hasn't called you, you to sit around. We need to run toward Jesus. Move in Jesus' direction. He's given us supernatural power, all of us, not 80, 20%, and the other 80, you only you got short change and you got maybe a little bit of the Holy Spirit. If you're a true believer, you receive the same amount of Holy Spirit as me, our staff, our elders, our deacons. You have the Holy Spirit in you, working in you. We need to move toward Jesus, every one of us. And so the fact that Peter and John responded so quickly is also, it shows that they weren't responsible for stealing the body you know many later on skeptics made up tried to make up a, a reason why the tomb was empty and they said well the disciples stole the body but would peter and john have jumped up and taken off and ran if they knew that they had already taken the body obviously not that wouldn't make much sense so another um detail that just shows us the authenticity of the story so both of them run together but the other disciple outruns peter and reaches the tomb first so john gets there but he doesn't go in, like I said, but stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes laying there, but did not go in. And Simon Peter came and followed him. And of course, Simon Peter, he went right into the tomb and he saw the linen clothes laying there. So why did John hesitate? Well, a couple of possibilities here. Jewish people were really leery of like bodies and graves and things like that, right? Because if, if somebody, a Jewish person touched a body, a dead body, they were ceremonially unclean, so it was a big deal. Graves were respected, so this was not something you just bolt into and go into and look. So John's looking, he's peering in, he's checking out things, he sees things, but he doesn't want to go in to the tomb. Also, maybe he's worried that the fact that if he goes in, he knows there's something unlawful that's happened here, like Jesus is gone, right? There were soldiers at the tomb, what's going on? So he doesn't want to be part of that. Regardless of why he hesitates, Peter, of course, barges straight in. In verse 6, he saw the linen clothes laying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the other linen clothes, but folded up and placed by itself. So think back to maybe... The story of John 11 of Lazarus when he raised from the dead, when Jesus, uh, you remember when he called him out of the grave, like he came out in his grave clothes, right? He was all wrapped around in grave clothes, and also it was noted that he had a face wrap as well. So apparently that was the Jewish way, at this point at least, to bury people. And so if you think about this, somebody would come into a grave, they would take the clothes off of the body, leave the body, you know, take the body with them, leave the grave clothes there, fold them up nice and neat, fold up the napkin and lay it there. Just, it didn't make sense. It, it, there's no way a thief would have taken that time to unwrap Jesus 
and the corpse. And pl plus, grave robbers, they had no desire to steal a body. The linens were what was worth something. That had value. They would have taken that, not the other way around. And here's the thing, another thing to remember. In Matthew's account, the Jewish authorities actually confirm the fact that the tomb was empty, right? They actually confirm that the body was missing. And so they had to come up with some explanation why the tomb was empty as well. So Jesus can be trusted because the tomb was truly empty. The tomb was empty. Verse 8, Then the other disciples, so John who had reached the tomb first, he went also, he joined Peter, and he saw, and he believed. So after going inside, Peter going inside, John follows him, and this verse tells us that John believed. Now, I, I believe this would be just this faith that's still in progress. Sorry, I believe that's still in progress. But John at least begins to consider the possibility that Jesus is alive. All right, he's not there. His body was more than likely not taken, right? So something's happened here. There's something that's, that's, that's unusual happening. And so John begins to entertain. He, he believes. He, he begins to think there's something supernatural that's happened. But Peter, he's still uncertain. Luke 24 tells us that Peter went home and he began to wonder to himself, began to contemplate what had happened. But John here, he definitely feels like, right, Jesus, there's a good possibility he is alive. But, verse 9, but as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So they didn't get it how Scripture had predicted over and over, and Jesus had predicted over and over, that Jesus would rise from the dead. And that's, I think, an important thing for many that are sitting here today, possibly. Because maybe you've grown up in a culture of Christianity. Maybe you've accepted a lot of the facts of Christianity. And you can accept the fact that Jesus is not in the tomb, right? That he rose again. But... You're, you're not really sure of the meaning of Jesus' resurrection. Like, you've never really put it together why Jesus rose. Defeating hell, defeating sin, defeating the grave. Proving he was who he said he was. And so that our lives now are lived in a supernatural way because something supernatural happened. So it's not just enough to affirm intellectually, yes, Sure, Jesus is alive. I'm okay with that. I go to church on Easter, right? I, I go to church occasionally and sometimes, and I'm part of a church, part of this church at some level, but I don't really see change happening in my life because I've never connected the fact that Jesus actually, literally, truly rose from the dead and the fact that what this accomplished on our behalf through faith in him, what that does, and it changes everything. And also, I think it's interesting to, to question the disciples. Why? They heard Jesus talking, verses like Mark 8, 31, Matthew 17, 22, Luke 9, 22, where Jesus was pretty clear, right, about the fact that he would rise again. He said that I, I'm going to destroy the temple and rebuild it three days, and he was talking about his body, gave him an illustration. He said, three days like Jonah, I'm going to meet in the heart of the earth, right? And, and he said in Matthew 26, 7, 63, he said it very clearly, three days I will rise again. And so it's easy for us to look at the disciples and we think, why don't they get it? Why don't they get it? But without sounding too harsh here, because I'm talking to myself as well as you, if we examine below the surface of our lives, how much do we really get it? Like supernatural power, yet we live our lives in a way 
that oftentimes feels very pedestrian, very empty spiritually, very isolated. The disciples, I believe they didn't get it because their expectations or understanding was wrong. Because of the worldview that they had, they could not come outside of that box and rethink what Jesus was saying. In fact, in Mark chapter 9, verse 9 through 11, when they were coming down from the mountain, this was the Mount of Transfiguration, some of you know that story, he charged his disciples not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. It's like, he just said it, right? So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean, and they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? You see, they were thinking in terms of Elijah must come. During first century Judaism, many people thought the prophet Elijah would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord, the day of judgment, when the dead would rise again. And so the disciples could not understand the idea of the resurrection occurring prior to the end of the world. So you see, they had this way of thinking. Jesus, the Son of God, is explaining it to them. He's telling them the truth. They don't see it. They don't get it. They have their blinders on. Let's not be like that. We have the advantage of having the full counsel of God, the Scriptures. And I would say your value of Scripture is not determined by what you say about it, above water, tell me about it. But I would say I would want to go below the surface and see how much you actually read it and study it and meditate upon it. I think that's a better indicator of your belief system than the things that you show and say today on Sunday. We're great at talking a big, big talk, like the disciples, but our lives under the surface don't really illustrate that same belief. So Jesus' predictions confused the disciples. They understood the resurrection to be looking forward to the last day. And so what do they do? Then, verse 10, John and Peter, they go back to their homes. And we're going to see over the next week that they return back to their homes, and they're fearful, and they're puzzled. They're confused. They know something happened here. John even knows something supernatural happened here, but he still can't put it together. And many of us will leave this building today, will leave having taken communion, having heard the word, and will return home and will return to the same way of living under the surface, fearfully, full of anxiety, full of doubt, full of struggles, maybe even some of you with lives full of secret sin because the resurrection hasn't sunken down deep into your heart and changed what you believe about God's word. That he can be trusted. That what he said, I can truly build and bank my life upon. And it's what Jesus told us. He said, the person who builds their house on me, the storms will come. They will, right? They will come. If you've lived long enough, you know storms come, right? I, for years I lived with this, you know, I haven't had any really personal 
crisis. I, my brother passed away, but he was living in China. He was far away from me. It was hard to really take that in. This past year, my mother died. It's getting closer to home. Like, bad happens in life, right? Terrible things happen. And, and, and at those moments, you know whether you're built on Jesus, the rock, or upon sinking sand that's going to just be washed away. And you know whether your faith is true and solid, or is maybe you kind of just like intellectually got it, but it's never sunk down deep into your heart. Let's don't return home like the disciples. Back to the natural world, right? Flip on the TV, just continue on life as normal, living life, responsibilities, duties, running from this game to that game and this place to that place with no thought whatsoever of what God's trying to accomplish through my presence, through my life. I mean, what a great illustration of Florence, and I won't even give a try to say her last name, but Florence, our missionary, who's now in an assisted living place. Look, my dad's in an assisted living place. Everybody's like, take care of me, right? Like, serve me. I'm paying you to take care of me. The fact that she has this mindset that says, I'm here to serve and look out and care for you around me, I mean, that's not natural, right? That is literally supernatural way of living. And that's what God has called each and every one of us to live. It's not saying you need to go and be a missionary necessarily over with Buzz in Africa, although he would be glad to have you, trust me, all right? Um, but Jesus is calling you to represent his presence through living out your purpose each and every day of your life, regardless of where you're at, where you're going, what you're doing, what you're saying, what you're thinking. God wants you to live that out through the power of the Holy Spirit each and every day. Here's what Paul said in closing in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 19 through 21. It'll be on the screen if you want to read with me in your, in, to yourself. Paul's praying. He says, I also pray that you, the church at Ephesus, you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. So we believe him, and we believe that God's power is working for us. The same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in a place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. That's not natural, right? There's nothing natural about the right hand of God in the supernatural heavenly realm. That's supernatural stuff. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, praise God, right? That the people in Washington, Jesus is way above them, but not just them, but also in the world to come, the spiritual beings, the powers and principalities that Paul had talked about, talks about. Jesus is above all of this. And he says, the same resurrection power is available. Jesus raised from the dead, and that power lives in us. So you have, if you're a believer, if your faith is in Jesus, you have supernatural, Holy Spirit-given purpose, power, and spiritual gifting. All right? It's easy to leave it at purpose and power, but spiritual gifting means that God has given you a unique gift to serve this body and to serve others. But the question is that we need to ask of our hearts, does our purpose, where does it fall in our list of priorities? Let that sink in for a second. 
Where does your purpose in life, your purpose ministering to your fellow believers, caring, loving for your fellow believers, um, helping hold them accountable for their lives and their sin, to help them grow and mature because of your unique gifts that God has given you to minister to them, where does that fall on your list of priorities? Maybe for some of you it's like down below reruns of Friends, right? That's where you find your list of priorities, right? Like, yeah, maybe like God's down here somewhere. For others, it's right near the top, but maybe you're not really executing the way that you know that you should, that you're not serving and ministering out of the joy that God has given to us in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's allow our purpose to dictate our priorities and not the other way around. Let's not let priorities push down our purpose. And so some of you may say, okay, what, what do I do? What, how, do I, how do I live this life through the power of, of the Holy Spirit? I, I just want to give you a really practical hands today, all right? It, it's about as hands-on as you can get that we are going to take the Lord's Supper together. And that's a big deal. It's a big deal because Jesus told us to do this often. As often as we do it, to do it in remembrance of him. Because it's his presence that gives us the power. It's his presence that we find the ability to live out the life that God's called us to live. It's not by saying, all right, I see what you're saying, now I'm going to run out and do the work on my own. No, it's Christ at work in us. His presence working with us. Us being in his presence. Letting him be Lord of our lives. And so communion is taking the bread, which represents, of course, his body, broken for us. The juice representing his blood that was spilt for us. Something we've done many, many times, many of you, in your life. But allow today to be a time of deep, honest spiritual reflection. And being honest about those below-the-surface things that you're struggling with. And just listen. Bring it to him. Before we take the Lord's Supper today, start by just admitting to him, God, I need your grace for my hypocrisy. I need your grace for my struggles. I need your grace for my anxiety. I need your grace for my marriage. I need your grace for my kids because I sure can't control them. I need your grace for my job because it's hard for me to live for Christ because nobody else is going that direction. Be real. Start there. Be real that I need your presence in all these areas of my life.